0: We've discussed at length on this show how much the COVID crisis has accelerated trends of automation and fintech adoption. Many big banks have said that they've achieved a decade's worth of digital transformation in just six months. And the headlines are full of eye-popping fintech IPOs and valuations but it's harder to tell which of these trends will continue and what they will mean for financial services when we hopefully get back to normal in 2021 and beyond. Luckily, Matt Harris, a partner at Bain Capital, has agreed to join us to offer his perspective. Matt is not just in the middle of what's happening in fintech. More importantly, he's shown time and again a unique talent for understanding what's going on, so I'm delighted to welcome him to the show to offer his insights on fintech in a broader historical perspective. Now, we might not go all the way back to the ATM machine, but I am delighted to again have Amaya Scarity back for the second time in two weeks as the show's co-host to take us on a guided tour of key moments in fintech history with Matt. And I'm excited for this fantastic voyage, especially since the ride will take us through everything from the evolutionary theory of punctuated equilibrium, how SARS played a key role in the explosion of digital payments, and what lessons we can draw for the current moment.
1: All right, thanks Chris, great to be back and so excited for Matt Harris to join me here today. Matt, welcome to FinTech Beat. Thanks to you both for having me. Matt, as Chris mentioned, we're in an interesting moment, but the most recent optimistic news about a vaccine and not to mention the new administration in Washington has everyone pretty focused on 2021. At the same time, you chose this moment to look back to the past, Why should innovators focus on the past? What can they learn there?
2: Well, I'm sort of a wonky, nerdy type to begin with, so uh, I have no choice but to dwell on historical topics and and look for powerful patterns and and metaphors, just because that's how I'm uh, set up. But I happen to think it's it's not useless, and it may be quite useful in, in in certain circumstances. I think at very least, it's a powerful way to communicate things. I think analogies. Uh, make for good arguments at very least. And I think it's a, it's a way to illustrate points that can resonate with an audience. But I also think it it can be analytically useful. You know, I forget who said it, but somebody once said that history doesn't repeat, but it surely rhymes. And, and certainly that's been my experience. So when I look at the history of technology, certainly there are patterns that reoccur. And if we can use those to think about the future and make predictions and that gets us ahead of the game, well, then it's quite useful.
1: And zooming out, Matt, I really thought your piece reminded me of an important piece from about a year ago by Ben Thompson at Stratechery, in which he didn't use the phrase punctuated equilibrium, but he looked instead at the evolution of the car industry. And he pointed out that in the decades around the turn of the century, when cars were new, there were dozens of new car companies every year. And yet, by the 30s, there were only four car companies. So it feels like maybe we're in the middle of a 20 or 30-year journey for dozens of new fintech companies to be born. But do you think that there's going to be a point, per your argument about punctuated equilibrium, where there really only are four or five big fintech companies that survive?
2: Well, I, I tend to think that, that you know, tech is not, not uniform. Um, and and surely automobiles constituted you know technology 100 110 years ago, but of a particular type, which is I won't say commodity, but let's just say that the range of variability in automobiles uh, is finite. Um, and so, when you have an industry where economies of scale matter a lot, and the ability to differentiate exists in a band then I think the dynamics that we saw in the auto industry are quite likely to predictably happen. You'll have a Cambrian explosion of, of diversity and then the economic uh, economies of scale, that factor will trump the human desire for you know variety and you'll get three or four. Um, I could see that happening in cloud computing where again, the ability to differentiate is modest and the economies of scale are massive. And so we're already sort of resolved to three or four cloud platforms. Um, and I could see it in, in aspects of uh, of fintech, you know, and challenger banking, which is to say, you know, unlicensed, entrepreneurially led, tech focused, retail banking. Um, I personally think economies of scale matter a lot in terms of marketing spend and in terms of uh, the the underlying technology to a certain extent. Um, certainly resiliency and things like scale around base of deposits and ability to negotiate with vendors. So scale matters sort of medium. Um, but more importantly, there's just not a lot of range on feature functionality from my perspective. So if you told me there were going to continue to be dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of challenger banks in the future, I'd I'd be skeptical. Um, I think VCs will ultimately tire of funding, you know, the the bank, you know, just for twelve-year-old girls or, or whatever the you know super niche um, neo bank that that is about to get funded next week. Um, but there are certain aspects of of fintech that I think are far more diverse in their potential outcomes and face off against large audiences that have vast segmentation. And consolidation, therefore, is is less likely. And and the dynamism of, you know, entrepreneurs finding out what comes next and building for that scenario will kind of keep things from getting too stable and too consolidated.
1: Matt, in my experience working with you, you are more skeptical than the average stereotype of a rah-rah VC investor. How do you use these historical trends to isolate what you should be skeptical about and what you should be excited about?
2: Well, I've gotten that feedback and uh, I I acknowledge it. I've done this and really nothing else for 25 years. And when that happens, you get a lot of scar tissue from things that seemed really, really exciting and ended up being tragically not. And I carry that with me. And and I, I like to think of it as something that heightens my discernment, but but surely it's something that you know curbs my enthusiasm at the same time. Um I think if you talk to founders that I end up backing, I think they see a version of me that's wildly enthusiastic. And I think it, it um what what I would say to the extent to which I can actually influence and control this, I would say that I I try to, you know, present a, a kind of mildly skeptical but super friendly you know out you know out facing mode 90 percent of the time but then when i find something when i connect with a founder who educates me to something or a founder that's working on themes that on an a priori basis i've i had been interested in and we can work together to to go deeper you know i think i'm i hope i'm uh even more excited than the generically optimistic, you know, fist pumping, back slapping, high fiving VC of stereotype. Yeah, maybe it's um, maybe it's punctuated skepticism. Matt, I have punctuated, punctuated skepticism. That's exactly right. Um, you know, I, I do. I, I, again, I no no one's going to put me forward as a cheerleader un, under any circumstances. There's like a sobriety to my approach, but I do think that founders get energy from. The um, you know, kind of a if I can make him smile, I've won. Kind of approach, um, and so that's just who I am, and I and I do think being a student of history, you know, being history is pretty grim. You know, (laughs) let's be honest. I mean, you know, the the winners in history are, are are a scant few, and um, and so that surely colors my affect. But um, but you know, get me next to a winner who who has ideas that I think are powerful and durable, and I think you see a you know. A very excited version of Matt Nerves.
1: Yeah. I remember a conversation, Matt. I think the first conversation we had was in 2013. I was at the Treasury Department and everyone was very excited about marketplace lending and the growth rates were astronomical. And you described a mispricing of consumer credit as a pig and a python. Why weren't those new lending business models sustainable?
2: Yeah, well, really what I meant by the pig and the python was that, that the pig in question was a, a bolus of mispriced consumer loans that had generally been made before the financial crisis and before the Card Act, um, mainly credit card loans and some unsecured personal loans by banks where the rates had been high to begin with or adjusted upwards. And those were sitting out there ready to be refinanced. Um, there was a separate part of the pig that was relatively high-priced student loans that were also ready to be refinanced by SoFi and and, uh, Common Bond and a few others. But what wasn't happening was um, an ever-refreshing set of new wrongly-priced loans. Um, And in fact, for three or four years, banks were kind of out of the business of making unsecured personal loans or aggressive credit card loans uh, of any type. So it felt really unsustainable to me. Um, and I think, you know, I've learned a lot from Frank Rotten and your your partner at QED who wrote on similar themes. And, you know, I think, you know, he felt and others felt uh, those that acknowledged the pig in the python felt like, you know, there are worse ways to get into business. You can you can go ahead and, you know, have a lot of fun digesting that pig. As long as you're looking around for the next one, you might eat for a lifetime. Um, and in fact, there have been lending companies made perhaps so fine, who's rumored to be going public, who've you know taken advantage of what seemed like a moment in time phenomenon to build a real business. Um, but of course, many others who never recovered to the valuation levels that they were enjoying when you and I were having that conversation.
1: It is difficult as an investor to isolate growth from a sustainable trend. And so on the other half of the spectrum, the piece you wrote a couple weeks ago, really does an interesting job of separating out the pivotal moment from the start of e-commerce and online payments. And I always thought the conventional wisdom was that online payments were just a natural consequence of the original dot-com boom and bust. And yet you focus on SARS as a pivotal moment. To me, that's really interesting because SARS was really a, a blip in terms of, you know, you use this example of a pig in the Python, right? It was a, a momentary health panic, and yet it set off, in your view, a sustainable trend towards online payments. Tell us a little bit more about that SARS moment
2: and why it was so important for payments. You know, I should note that my perspective on this was uh, very much informed by Mike Tay, Um who I would, I would refer to as the principal author, uh, might run strategy at Broadridge and is indeed a deep thinker um, in a way that venture capitalists aren't always. Um, but you know, through collaboration with him, it became clear when you looked at the history that, you know, and I will say SARS was a big deal at the time. I mean, until COVID, it really was the pandemic of our generation. Um, and in Asia, the reason it doesn't loom large for us was it never really leapt continents as as COVID did. Um, but you know, it, it, the data suggests that it was more, it was less that e-commerce birthed online payments in Asia the way you could argue it did here with the advent of PayPal, and more that SARS birthed both e-commerce and electronic payments that. What happened in Asia was really a leapfrog phenomenon. Uh, Asian payments and Asian commerce had been meaningfully far behind uh, North America and Europe. And then with the failure of in-person systems and logistics and supply chain and and really everything that that SARS uh, caused in Asia, they were scrambling. To find alternatives, um, and that led to contact lists and electronic payments, and led to the growth of Alibaba and and the Asian giants in both e-commerce and payments that we see today. Um, so, you know, I think the whatever the impact of the crisis, um, which can be lasting and durable, or can be sharp and and sudden but but fleeting. Um, The long-term, secondary, and tertiary impacts economically in in, in this discussion on financial technology can actually be really profound.
1: Yeah, the moment we're living in today is interesting from that perspective because we're both living in a world where people are much more constrained in their choices, right? So many people are stuck at home. Other people are forced to work. But either way, you are you feel very constrained in the current COVID moment. And yet, we're also benefiting from the pre-COVID moment of everything comes right away. Everyone wants everything, gets everything right away. And so naturally, this leads to a really interesting intersection between real-time information, real-time data, real-time access, um, How does this play out for fintech once we're back to normal, do you think?
2: Well, there's a a lot of kind of nested impacts. And I think the most critical point and and one that took me a while to really internalize is that, yes, we will go back to normal, of course. It'll, in fact, be sooner than any of us or than I thought, at least given the um, vaccine development progress, but that nothing will ever be the same. Um, and that's the lesson of course, from sars uh, and and what Mike you know thought and wrote about so beautifully in the in the essay that I contributed to um and and so grappling with the long term impact of what appears to be a sea change in consumer and corporate behavior, I think is the fascinating work that founders are are obviously well into and Service providers like uh, like me get to you know play a role in it, um, and you can see it in the consumer. You know the shift e commerce. It has been referred to as sort of five years of penetration curve in five weeks, and that's surely what we've seen. We we have a company called Signify, for instance, that helps e commerce merchants manage credit card fraud. And there was a really nice company to begin with. It was growing well, et cetera. But the, you can just see the knee in the curve come end of Q1. And what was interesting and striking is that it hasn't slowed down. Um, it wasn't as though people you know, were driven to e-commerce in greater numbers, but deeply reluctantly and only to return rapidly to in-person commerce as soon as possible. That didn't happen. People were driven to e-commerce perhaps, and found that they liked it, that this was a better modality for lots of types of, of shopping. Um, and I think you see this in food delivery, you see this in in all sorts of, you know, convenient electronic means of, of transactions. And that relative to FinTech has been a tailwind for digital payments, for fraud management and all the accompanying, um, you know, collateral technology requirements, as well as buy now, pay later, which is a sector that had been, you know, look, synchrony and alliance data have been around for decades. Um, but if you look at the growth in Klarna and Fern, uh, Afterpay and some of these relatively newer companies, it it really was five years worth of growth in a, in a short period of time. Um, so I think on the consumer side, we've you know habits that will change forever, and and actually, I think the the beauty of that is you can just see it already in the numbers. And I think people have accommodated themselves to that new reality. Um, what I find perhaps more subtle, but maybe even more profound, is the change amongst uh, large corporates, and, and maybe let's you know because this is the fintech conversation amongst banks and insurance companies and broker dealers, and you know they. Realize that in a world where the demands, as you say, are are more real time uh, and certainly more digital, and all of those small pesky analog modalities that remain—the wet signatures and branches, um, you know, physical examinations—all those things that had been incrementally being wrung out of the incumbent business models had to get wrung out overnight. Um, and so the digital transformation theme, which obviously had been you know, priorities for every large incumbent, have become more than just one of several priorities, it became a real exigent uh, kind of emergency priority.
1: The, the big banks are so interesting from this perspective, because many of them were able to think of themselves as relationship companies because they had so many people and they said so much organic traffic and interaction that they never had to take the lesson that Apple or some of the other big tech brands have taken, which is creating a relationship without human interaction. And this is one of the places where on the consumer fintech side, we've seen that care of product design, product feel come in and really be effective. And I think the large banks are realizing now that you can't paper over, you know, okay, digital interaction with high quality customer interaction, and COVID was a moment that really accelerated that realization.
2: Yes, and I think so. I think there are certain banks who have tech budgets and, and they've hired really fancy designers and who wear hoodies and they put them in fancy offices in Soho, and but that misses the point. It's actually more about the core systems, the clunky latent. Ugly processes that crash all the time when they're being interacted with through these new apps. Um, that's a tougher putt. That isn't, you know, 80 designers in an office. That's actually a full rebuild. And honestly, I mean, I, I for policymakers, I think this is a U.S banking has been in a slow-motion crisis for a long time, but I am really concerned. About the five or 6,000 financial institutions that we still have in the United States, because you now have, um, they depend on four or five technology vendors who are not their friends, who overcharge them and provide them garbage technology. They are losing their most valuable customers. First, it was slowly, now it's quickly. They have no ability to scale down their expenses, no skill set around that. And and nim is contracting at the same time. You know we have no rate at all in the economy, and the apparently won't for years. And so all of the pillars of these community and regional financial institutions, all the way up to the big ones, have been systematically knocked out. Um, and and we know without a doubt that our economy depends on these institutions. And so you know, as much as I'm supposed to be a firebrand supporter of disruption, I, at this point. I feel, as a citizen, deeply concerned about the future of our banking infrastructure, not because they've made bad loans, because their business model is upside down. Yeah, I think this is a
1: an important point of reflection for the entirety of the financial system is what is the role of the bank? What is the role of the tech? And how do we serve the needs of the economy? Let me close, Matt, with a question just about your role as an investor and as a coach to CEOs. Um, Tell us about some big mistakes that you've seen or reasons companies fail and any lessons that you could give to founders uh, 25 years through this um, that that you would give to a founder, uh, either a young founder or someone aspiring to be a
2: fintech founder. The single biggest uh, challenge that most founders face is the recognition that when you succeed and as you succeed... You generally have to layer or replace your key people every nine to 12 months. And the emotional pain of that and this feeling of how risky that is relative to this culture that you work so hard to create, that creates inertia, which often prevents founders from making those hard decisions in a timely fashion. And when I look at the huge success stories relative to the okay success stories, so both within the realm of success story, the difference between the good outcome and the generational outcome is this knowledge that the person who got you to 10 million in ARR is unlikely to be the person who gets you to 50, who is then unlikely to be the person who gets you to 150. And having the courage to make those changes and treat those people with great respect and honor and, and know that they will then go on to probably help someone else make the next leap, um, but that this is the way the system works. Uh, that's most of my coaching resolves down to that, talent management in a hyper-growth company.
1: Yeah, it's a really emotional journey. And I think sometimes people focus too much on the tech. So I appreciate you bringing us back to the real journey that people's lives are on as they're building these companies and trying to make these changes. Well, Matt, this has been such a pleasure for us. And thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh, it's really my pleasure. It's great to, great to chat with you. And um, let's do it again soon.
0: I talked to Matt after the interview about how his conversation with Amaya struck a chord, especially after our recent podcast on Ant Group and marketplace lending in China. After all, I figured Matt's theory on SARS kind of made sense when you think back. After all, Alibaba was founded in 1999 as an e-commerce platform. The SARS outbreak occurred in 2002. Alipay was launched in 2003 just as eBay came to China. And the two dueled it out, and the rest is digital history. The reason why I mention it is that it seems to me that in an age of exponential technological innovation, Punctuated equilibria can and probably will happen far more often than in the past and perhaps even simultaneously. Now, this can be both a blessing and a curse for the industry. On the one hand, it creates more opportunities for entrepreneurs and perhaps even the little guy looking to jump into otherwise crowded or commoditized markets but at the same time, it makes analysis much more challenging, especially when seeking to draw lessons from the past. In short, you can't disentangle one event from the other very easily in order to understand what the implications of any one event may have been. In the end, it's the kind of thing that makes judgment even more important than ever for venture capitalists, as not only selecting companies, but judging results can also feel at times as little more than an educated guess. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer, D-R. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.